ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chicky Fitzgerald, and we have back by popular demand, Ann Lair. And Ann has a, a business that focuses on trends that shape future leadership. Ann, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be back with you today. Well, it has, uh, it's been a long time since we've talked, and we've actually talked a couple of times. You've written a number of books, and I think the last time we might have talked about managing the unmanageable, and uh, that, that one was great fun, so I encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that. And why don't you tell our listeners that haven't been familiar with your previous work a little bit about you personally? Sure. So I always like to tell people about my values because values tells you a lot about a person. And so if someone were to ask you, what, what do I need to know about Anne at a very high level? Uh, one of my values is having fun. It's very important for me to have fun with you, Chicky, to have fun with the audience, to have fun in general. It's also really important for me to build deep relationships, which is why it's so fun to be back with you again and, mm-hmm. and deepen our relationships. And uh, probably the third thing I always say about myself when people say, well, who are you? What makes you tick? It is very important for me to make sure that I'm helping people grow an inch by inch. And it does not mean that I'm this big guru at all. It just means have I made them think a little differently today? That's really important for me. And, you know, we got back together this time. Uh, Usually it's because uh, our authors have written a new book. And, you know, I I love inviting our authors back on. But in your case, the thing that stuck out with me was a story that you wrote online about a recent trek of Kilimanjaro. And I have just written a book, and one of the characters in my book – climbs Mount Kilimanjaro, which I didn't have any firsthand knowledge of, but I did <laughs> know uh, someone else in, in my uh, background that had done so. So uh, I didn't get very detailed about it other than a few tips about uh, how you train when you're on flat land like here in Tampa. Uh, but why don't you tell us, first of all, what drove you to do that? Absolutely. So you're right. I I don't write books anymore, but I do write for Fast Company and love to write articles like this. And I'm always encouraged to share my personal life. And I'm always a little hesitant, like, really, people want to know that. And uh, (laughs) the response has been great, just like yours. Um, So what happened is, is if you recall, Chicky, my husband and I lived in East Africa for 12 years, and we worked and lived there for 12 years and then moved back to the States. And during that time, we climbed Kilimanjaro. It's known as, uh, sometimes we call it Kili, which is in, actually in Tanzania, not in Kenya. And it's the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. It really is kind of like flat, 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 and then bump up to 19,000 feet, and then flat, 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 flat. It's not part of a range, and it's this very dramatic-looking mountain. And it's absolutely beautiful. So we did it probably about 15 years ago. I was uh, blessed to be able to summit all the way to the top. My husband did not. And fast forward, we now live in Washington, D.C. We have a 12-year-old daughter, and we go to Kenya on a regular basis every 18 months or so to see my husband's family. And during that time, we always try to add something new and exciting. And so we said, how about if we climb Kili? 
was not expecting our daughter to say yes at all. We're kind of more of a beach family, Tampa family, <laughs> and uh, had never really done anything like that before. And she said, sure. And I was like, oh, my gosh, okay. Um, and so then we had to begin the preparation physically in terms of training, um, in terms of the gear, getting all that together, also financially. Uh, so it was a many, many, many months preparing as a family and then working our way up to actually getting on the plane and then climbing and then coming on back. And it was kind of seems like a dream, but the whole thing was probably about nine to ten months and from the beginning to the end. And you also have one of your values is the spirit of adventure, right? And and that that's clear uh, just from living in Africa alone, you know, let alone, let alone climbing Kilimanjaro. So talk to us a little bit about how that spirit of adventure plays into creating a culture of purpose in your organization. Because I know, you know, the heart of your uh, your company is, is really helping organizations grow, and one of those important dimensions is that culture. Absolutely. So first, let's just define culture for the audience, because it's one of those words, tricky that people think they know what they mean, but it's kind of fuzzy. So when people talk about organizational culture, they're talking about the personality of the organization, and it's made up of three things. It's made up of the values and then the behaviors and the mindset around those values. So it's values, behavior, and mindset. That's what actually makes an organizational culture. And lots of times people say, oh, that's a bad culture. Oh, that's a good culture. And what I always say is there actually is no bad culture or good culture. The the pain, the emotion that we feel is when there is a misalignment to the values and what we thought we agreed when we decided to work for that organization or be a part of that organization, and the mismatch when those values aren't actually played out. So if we think that we're working for a Google-type environment where it's a lot of creativity and innovation and that type of thing, and we come to find that it's actually pretty strict in terms of how we manage our time and how we communicate and that kind of thing, that's where that, that dis-ease feels in terms of the organizational culture. And so as we start to think about culture, purpose or a sense of purpose is a very big piece of that because purpose actually comes from our values. Right, and, and you talk about that purpose actually being baked into our corporate DNA. So, so how does a leadership team actually take those values and bake it into how the organization operates? It's hard. It's, it's much harder than it sounds. So first of all, I, I want to also just mention, you know, we're talking about this, and, and we have to say the obvious here, Chickie, is that we actually most of the time live in the opposite of a purpose-driven world or purpose-driven organization where their values are right up center and everybody is following them. And, and the impact is very, very large because people – want to make a difference. They want to do something new. And what we're finding, according to Gallup, is that 13% of employees worldwide feel that they're engaged. And when we talk about engagement, we're meaning someone who is really committed to their job and making a positive contribution. So as we kind of tie values and culture together, we have to talk about engagement. And it's incredible that only 13%, Chicky, of the worldwide employees feel that, which means 87% what about them? What is going on with them? And that is directly tied to values and a purpose and, as you say, how we bake it into organizations. Right. And I have to ask, 
is there uh, a distinction of those that are engaged? How many of those uh, fit into which generation? Because uh, you know, so so many of our discussions in the past have really been about the generational differences in an organization. And is this one area where it's the youth uh, that are more engaged, or is it the the people with the institutional knowledge about that? You know, even though the company may be driven by profit, that there is really a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no clear-cut way to answer that question. So I'm going to answer in a couple different ways. So first of all, absolutely, everybody wants a sense of purpose. Everybody wants to contribute. Everybody wants to know that their work is valuable and making a difference. So it doesn't matter how old you are. We all want that. It's part of our human nature. Now, what we are finding, though, is that purpose is very important to Gen Y. That is that group also known as millennials, born between 1981 and 2001. And also to Gen Z, who is not in the workforce yet. Gen Z is born from 2001 to present. And, again, they're not quite in the workforce yet, but the, the results <laughs> are very Especially in my <laughs> home where we have that discussion all the time with, with my dad. Yes. yes, absolutely. Um so, you know, is it something that we all want? Yes. Is it being driven by the younger generation uh, to a certain point? However, though, we are definitely seeing that uh, the boomers, those born between 1946 and 64, are actually more engaged right now. And so we really have to kind of ask why is that, and we also have to ask, well, what is it that people are looking for? And, and Annie McTee, who is the founder of Telios Leadership Institute, she studied thousands of people and dozens of big organizations. And what she has found is some really interesting things, Chicky. What she found is that when we feel negatively about work, we actually don't process information well. We don't think creatively. We don't make good decisions. But yet when we feel positive about work, the opposite is true. We process information better. We're more creative. We make better decisions. That, that alone is pretty earth-shattering in terms of, wow, so, so how do we get people to feel more positive? Right. What she's also found is that people are looking for a meaningful vision of the future. They want to know that they're contributing to something in the future. They want good relationships. That's the second thing, where they have some kind of supportive relationships that helps them want to contribute because they're kind of more tied to the organization. And then the third thing is, no surprise, that when people want to feel good about work, they are looking for a sense of purpose. And when their own purpose is intertwined with an organization's purpose, whether it's ending hunger, creating widgets, it doesn't matter, that's even more powerful. So really when we think about organizations and baking values in and baking purpose in, it's not just about a feel-good, although feel-good is very important, It's really about what they're looking for is they're looking for relationships, they're looking for a vision, and they're looking for purpose. And that purpose, if we can increase it even to 20% of employee engagement, Chicky, imagine what would be different in our society, in our organizations, if we just got a little bit more engagement. Well, and and we know uh, certainly historically in in workforce performance and and, – you know, really getting the most out of people, that people do repeat what they're rewarded for and mm-hmm. what gets measured gets accomplished, right? So how how do you change the metrics in your organization to drive the kind of behavior 
um, you know, because I, I look at my own organization and, and I'm just retooling my, my entire company and we've pivoted off of being a consulting firm into becoming a, a tech company. And I've brought together a team and one of our, our business model elements is giving back 10% of our gross revenues to the charity of choice of our client. And that, that alone, you know, is easy to measure. Uh, and, but the, the one thing that we're asking of our clients is to define for us, you know, for every dollar, every $100, every $1,000 that we give to their charity of choice, what does it actually yield? And I'm not talking about what percent is going to administration, you know, in, in whoever we give to. It, it really is you know, does that save, you know, two people out of human slavery? Does it, you know, produce two wells in a, an African village, right? What, what does it do so that we can create this new kind of balance sheet that actually does measure the purpose of our organization? Because we want to be able to demonstrate the, the, you know, the legacy that we're leaving in physical things that we're changing on our planet, right? So what other ideas have you had of how you can actually measure this shift, perhaps from profitability to purpose, which most people know that if you are purpose-focused, you're actually more profitable? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So first of all, congratulations. What a great, great company that you are creating and engaging in. So congratulations and thank you. Oh, uh, to, to answer your your question, so I always jokingly say we measure what we treasure, right? So we yes. we measure our bank account, we measure our scale, we measure our Fitbit, right? And so the question is, how do you measure values, right? Because I truly believe that the search for purpose begins with understanding values, whether it's personal values for an individual or whether it's organizational values. And so that's the million dollar question: is how do you measure values? So. First of all, you have to identify values, right? Again, if it's a leadership team, what are my personal core values? Or if it's an organization, uh, generally, if it's a smaller company, I say start with the leadership team, right? Let them figure out their personal values and those different activities we can talk about to do that. And then from there, once they understand what we're talking about, then let's identify organizational values. And there's things you can get, such as values cards, like a deck of cards, and they just list values and you just have lots of conversations. Is this appropriate for us? Is this not appropriate for us? And it's not so much tricky where we are now. It's where are we going in three years. In three to five years, what are the values that we hold that are going to help us move forward in terms of our strategy? So the first step is kind of figuring out what are the values. And then the next step is figuring out how do we integrate those values into every single organizational process. So just to give a very quick example, Let's say we're talking about our values and we're talking about the HR talent life cycle since you and I both are somewhat in that field, right? So my question for people is, okay, let's start incorporating it into everything. When you do a job description, are your values in that job description? When you do a job interview, do you talk about your values? Do you ask the person about their values? When you hire, do you make sure that the values are reflected? And onboarding, are they talked about at a big level? Uh, in terms of performance reviews, are those values baked into the performance reviews and they get rewarded for them? Uh, compensation, that type of thing. So that's a very high-level example of how do we take this very amorphous concept of purpose and culture, which people don't really know what you mean, and actually measure it all the way down 
Well, first you have to figure out individual values, organizational values, and then bake it into every single process, and then make sure that you're using it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of begs the question, and, and I go through this now with my investors and my board members, of, of when you're talking to people who are used to things being measured in terms of the treasure, right, the, the financial treasure of the organization, mm-hmm. um, once you've gotten the leadership team to buy in, there, there is still a process of, of getting the board and, and the investors to understand. And, you know, I, I was just about today to start looking for some resources of, of more current studies that might have been done on you know the link between profitability and being purpose driven or or more specifically actually overtly giving back right as part mm-hmm. of the business model, which is what we're doing um and then you know there are other things uh, that play into that, such as you know the the earlier generations uh or the younger generations rather tend to be more focused on those kinds of things, whereas my generation, and, and you know, I was born in 1957, so I am very definitely a boomer. Um, you know, we've just grown up with that whole profitability focus, and, and we may have developed a personal desire to give back, right, but that wasn't baked into how we were trained, uh, whether in college or, you know, in our in our business life. So my, my question is really twofold of, of how once we've gotten that buy-in from the leadership team, how do we convince the other stakeholders in the organization? And then second of all, are you aware of any studies that tie purpose to profitability? Sure. So I'll, I'll take the first one first. So when we start to think about this and going back exactly to what you just said, uh, the boomers right now still generally are in leadership roles, although Gen X is, is very much so as well. And bottom line is really about finances, right? Is this a profitable company? Can we continue to grow? Can we develop the way we want to develop? And so I always say, well, let's measure it financially. And again, you think, well, how, how do you measure it financially? It's this kind of weird purpose word. Um, and so if we're backing up in terms of the conversation we've had so far. We know purpose is driven by values. We know that values drive engagement. And so if we can measure employee engagement, we can then track the bottom line. Let me give you an example. So I'm working with an organization right now, and a very large multinational, and uh, they're starting to get into this whole idea of future of work and purpose and, and how do we tie it all together, exactly the conversation you and I are having. And I said, well, let's just run some numbers, because I truly believe there is an art and science to managing people and managing organizations. It's not just the art. There is actually science. And I truly believe believe that human capital, in other words, it's a fancy way of saying that the staff that we work with, the employees, is the final frontier in terms of really tying it all together. So I said, let's just give us some some basic data on your workforce. Who are they? How long have they been there? What's their tenure? What are their salaries? That kind of thing. And what we found out in a pretty short time, just running some numbers and algorithms, was that they are losing $31 million a year in attrition. And they had no idea. $31 million. So I said to them, look, if you can get some of that money back and if you can apply it toward 
employee development, which is part of purpose, and making sure that the values are in place, which is part of purpose. Would that be worthwhile for you? And they're like, yes, please. And so to answer your question, you can absolutely tie the science behind the art of managing people now with technology to understand exactly it's that area. It's that city if you're a national company. It's that city if you're an international company. It's that functional area, whether you're a truck driver or a data analyst, whatever the case may be. And then you can say, that's where we need to go first. Because right now we do a lot of great leadership development programs, a lot of great training, and I'm fully on board with all that. And we're not exactly sure we're going in the right place, and we're not exactly sure we're dealing with the engagement. And now through the science piece of it, you and I can actually pinpoint exactly where is there the least engagement, and therefore that is where we start, introduce the conversation about values again, go back into training, all that type of thing, to raise that up. Right. And, and again, you know, I, I think results is something that uh, boards and, uh, again, shareholders, investors have an easy time understanding results. And if we can start correlating uh, retention, as you said, increasing the visibility of purpose in, in the organization and how you manage and how you train, then the results will speak for themselves. So, you know, back to the other half of the question of are, are you aware of any, any published studies that, that leadership teams that want to move forward with this but need some empirical evidence and, and they haven't been able to develop it yet, right, because they kind of haven't gotten the go-ahead to, to shift their focus, um, what can they present to their, their board and, and their investors uh, mm -hmm. about this that might convince them? Sure. So there's a, a few resources. So Annie McKee, who I quoted earlier, who founded mm -hmm. Helios Leadership Institute, has some great research, and that's M-C-K-E-E. -E. Also, Imperative in New York, um, they are an organization that just focuses on purpose-driven organizations, and uh, they have a lot of research, and they actually host a summit, which I was invited to, and basically they have 50 thought leaders in one room and really talking about the nature of organizational purpose and why it matters. And uh, it's actually interesting because you would think 50 thought leaders from all different industries uh, in one room would get 50 different opinions of what purpose is. And actually we were very much in agreement. It's, it's kind of like great art. You, you know it when you see it. And right, so, right. Um, so, they, so they actually have done some great work as well. So I would encourage your listeners to, to go there and really start to figure out what they're looking for. Is it about the values and understanding the values or is it about employee engagement? Because you can absolutely measure employee engagement, right? right? You can take just the basic data of illnesses, productivity, time off, salary, and you can just figure out that 13% number that I was talking about for Gallup. You can do that for your organization to say, right. where are we as an organization? Oh, my gosh, we're only like at 40%, which actually would be really good. 40% of our employees are fully engaged. You can measure that now. You weren't able to do that even a few years ago. And now you can actually measure that and then, you know, do some type of intervention, whether it's a training, whatever it may be, right. then measure it again. And so that is a way that you can talk to the board members and say, look, we were at this percentage six months ago. We're now at this percentage. And because the reason this is so important is productive people are 
happier. Happier people, productive people go hand in hand, and then they're going to make a bigger contribution. That doesn't mean happy, 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 right? But where they're content, where they are fulfilled, those two are hand in hand. And so those types of things you can easily take back to your board and say, look, we just did this every six months, and look at the numbers we're increasing, and that means that our productivity is increasing, and therefore it's down to the bottom line. And I want to circle back to Kilimanjaro, uh, <laughs> where where we began the discussion. I want to talk uh, just a little bit about the result of that trip on your daughter. Um, and you know, it has obviously been been 17 years, uh, you know, since you and your husband uh, had gone, and he, you said he hadn't summited. And so Ariana, you know, she knew that history like when she started out, right? <laughs> So, so talk to me a little bit about what happens with with someone that age who has this enormous, uh, you know, challenge ahead of them, and and what happened in the months since then. Hmm. So uh, this is a quick backstory. So it's a six day climb. There's different routes that you can take. We took what was called the easiest route, which means you actually stay in huts. And it really is a very long, slow hike, up to eight to 10 hours a day. However, it is very long and slow, where you're literally to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And you can't go too fast because of altitude sickness. There's nothing technical at all. So mm-hmm. anybody could do it physically if they were in shape. You just need to make sure that you have a guide who knows what you're doing. And it's really just the final ascent. So generally, the rule is you go up three to four days very slowly. The final ascent, you get up about 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and then you have to climb all the way to the top in the dark. And that is absolutely freezing cold. And then ideally, you're summiting at sunrise. You see the sunrise, and then you come back down, sleep a little, and then you go back down. So that day itself can be anywhere from 12 to 15 hours. So that's an exhausting Mm. day. And then it's another day or two back down, again, kind of just going down the hill. So it's really just one very long period, 12 to 15 hours, that is the very difficult piece. And um, so we were so excited, and we got there, and we were ready, and we were by far the slowest group. You tend to have what we call a mountain family, like everybody tends to kind of climb at the same pace. Not mm-hmm. so that you're friends, but you, you see them, you pass them, you're having lunch here, they're having lunch there. You kind of get to know people, you chat with people. We were by far the slowest group in our family group. And so we actually got up a little earlier than everybody else. And um, we did really well. And the expression is that mountain sickness does not discriminate, which means it doesn't matter how old you are, how fit you are, that uh, mountain sickness just can hit anybody at any time, no matter what you do, the meds you take, what you drink. And it was about, I don't know, two in the morning maybe, and our daughter was doing really well, very slow. We were all together, but doing well. And um, she started to kind of meander. She wasn't walking in a straight line. We weren't sure, is that fatigue? Is that mountain sickness? Uh, then she started throwing up, and then uh, she said her head was going to explode. That's absolutely mountain sickness. So what happened then is I went down with our orders and our daughter and then took her down. We got down finally like at 6 in the morning. And my husband, because he didn't get a chance to summit, went up and summited. And then he met us later. 
So it was a very interesting time because I wasn't sure how our daughter was going to handle it. You know, was she going to take it as a loss? Was it going to be considered a failure for her, that kind of thing? She got to 17,000 feet. Uh, Kelly is 19,000 feet, so she didn't quite get to the summit. And um, she is so proud of herself. And and I'm so proud of her for handling it that way, right, rather than it's a failure, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm a loser. She's like, I made it to 17,000 feet. I'm 12 years old. And uh, she actually wow. wasn't even 12 then. She was 11 then. And, um, and I made it 17,000 feet. And she wants to do it again. We were talking about it over the weekend, actually, with some family. And a cousin said, I haven't climbed Kill yet. I want to do it. And Ariana's like, I want to do it with you again. Um, so it's on her bucket list to actually oh, do it again and, cool. and to summit like her dad did. Um, so the good news is that uh, she handled it well. She internalized it as pride rather than as failure. Uh, which is the the best gift I could have gotten. We did it right around Christmas time uh, to know that that's how she handled it, and and she's ready for the next adventure. Uh, Well, that is just an amazing story. And and I had a feeling that uh, a daughter that was related to you (laughs) would have that kind of outcome. So uh, (laughs) congratulations on on your parenting because uh, it it definitely does reflect back on on how you and your husband have raised her. So, um, And I would love to have you share with, uh, our listeners, how they can follow you. Uh, you know, if they just want to, I know you do a lot of uh, writing still, even though not not in book form. Um, and you know, tell us tell us what you do as your day job now. Is it is it coaching? Is it consulting? Uh, how could uh, a company engage you if they've been listening and say, yes, we need to make this shift in our organization? So what I always say to people, what I do in my day job is I help organizations grow and in the talent space. So we take the data, we measure where they are right now in terms of their human capital, their talent, their employees. We then create a baseline and then we figure out, well, do they need coaching? Do they need training? Do they need consulting? What do they need to help them grow, becoming a purpose-filled organization? So that's what we do. It's a great job. I travel a lot. I work with many, many interesting organizations, government, for-profit, non-profit. People can reach me. They can follow me on Twitter. So my name is Ann Lair, and it's spelled A-N-N-E-L-O-E-H-R. Again, as I said earlier, I write for Fast Company. They can see a lot of my writing there on Medium, Huffington Post, that kind of thing as well. And uh, would welcome anybody who just wants to learn more about purpose-driven organizations if I'm not the right person, I might put them in touch with Imperative or other places because we need more purpose-filled organizations and we need to get that number out of 13% to something higher for the good of our economy and the good for this country. Mm-hmm. Well, what a great note to end on. And it has been terrific to have you back with us. And again, we've been talking to Ann Lair, and you can also check out her, her books on Amazon. Uh, we have had some fabulous discussions. Uh, she is considered a generational guru, so if you're having any challenges with working with different generations within your organization or, or should you be hiring more uh, younger people into your organization, and by the way, I, I didn't mention we're also uh, very much baking that into who we are as a leadership team. We've got uh, 120-something, 130-something, uh, one who is just barely 40-something uh, 
<laughs> and, and then uh, I am I am just right on the cusp uh, of the top end of of fifty, and then we've got uh, someone who's in their early sixties. So, wow. you know, we are going to have just a blast as a purpose driven organization, and you know, baking in tech and all of the things to completely turn my industry on its head, which is, as you know, is the travel industry. So, stay tuned, and I'll fill you in more on how that all evolves, and and uh, maybe at some point you can come in and talk to us about how we can uh, maximize what we're doing as an organization. I would love that. And thank you for today's opportunity. It was great to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much, Anne. And thanks for our listeners. Uh, Again, if you would like to hear more uh, on this topic as well as others, you can go to thegamechanger.network. And next week, we will be talking to William Donaldson. Uh, He has written a a fascinating book on the mixture of simplicity and complexity. And we'll talk more about that next Friday. Thanks again for joining us. And go out and change your game today. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.